Thanks. Good morning. I'm Maria Hudson. Um, I'm married to Steve, and we have two children, Sam and Eliza. We've been coming to High Point for eight years, and we've been members for about two years. And Pastor Nick asked me to share a little of what's been going on with us in the past year. So here I go. I'd like to start by reading James 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I've been reading James 1 a lot this past year, and it's been encouraging to me because Steve and I have been in the process of adopting for about two and a half years. It feels like a long time, and to be honest, this time has been a trial for me. As I look back, I can see ways God has been working in me, just not in ways that I would have chosen. First of all, I don't like to wait for things, especially if it's something I really want. I'm a doer and a problem solver, and I want to be in control of things. I like lists and a plan, and if you follow the plan, then you get results, but not in this case. God is teaching me a lot about control, mainly that I have none, and he's teaching me patience and especially trust. Another thing God started working on was my pride. I thought we'd get picked by a birth mom quickly, My plan was that we'd get picked right away and then we'd be on to our fourth child. I hadn't even met our third, but I was already wondering, could we afford to adopt again? Is the house big enough for four kids? And will we need more baby names? It's embarrassing for me to share that with you, but it's the truth. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. No one picked us for 18 months. And that's humbling, to put it mildly. When we finally got picked and thought, this is it, the birth mom changed her mind. I was crushed and a little bitter. Do I still trust that God has a plan for me? Is he listening to my prayers? I felt like he had turned his back to me. Then in August, we got a call about a newborn baby boy. Sorry. Without... Without seeking God's direction, we rushed off. We rushed off to Georgia to get him. But things didn't go as we planned, and we chose not to proceed with the placement. Ultimately, we returned home without a baby. It's hard to explain how that feels. It feels like failure. It feels humiliating. And it's sad. Our small group really helped carry us through that time. They prayed with us, and they comforted us. And I had such peace about our decision to not go through with the placement, and I still do. But sadness and peace can be mingled together. Talk about wrestling with God. A good friend said to me, you have to be close with God to wrestle with him. And that really resonated with me, because I did feel closer to God in that moment than in a long time. After Steve and I decided to not move forward with the placement, our family stayed at the beach for several days. We needed some time away from everything, and we needed time with just the four of us. And every day we would head to the beach, and every day our son Sam would run ahead of us to get into the water. I mean, he'd run way ahead, 30 yards ahead of me, running to get into the ocean. And I kept yelling, Sam, wait, slow down, be careful. He couldn't even hear me because he was so far ahead, and the waves were loud, and he was distracted. But he had his own little plan that he was excited about. And finally, I got so frustrated with him that we had to have a little talk. 
I wanted him to have fun, but I also wanted to warn him of things he wasn't aware of. And most of all, I wanted to be with him because I love him and he's my child. And then it just washed over me. God was very gently revealing to me that I was doing the exact same thing with him. I was being a six-year-old. I run ahead of him all the time and I don't listen to his voice. And I make a plan and I get excited and I look over my shoulder to see if he's on board. God's been so tender with me through this all. I'm his child and he wants to be with me. I've realized I prefer the up-close wrestling. So I keep thinking about James chapter one. Do I expect the maturity without the trials? And what about my faith? Will I only praise God and bless his name when things are good? No, I want to see the blessings in the waiting and the wondering and in the wrestling. Because while we've been waiting for one prayer to be answered, God has answered countless others, and our family's been blessed in many ways. And the work he's doing in me and in Steve is more valuable than anything. So that's what's been happening with us, but what do I do next? Well, I'll wait longer, and I'll trust God more, and I'll seek his direction, and I'll pray for more of his spirit. I know he has a plan for me and our family, and I'll rely on his word. From Psalm 62, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. He can do anything, and he loves me, but it's his purpose that will prevail. So what are you going through right now? Maybe you have children who are rebelling, or a loved one who's sick, or your marriage is struggling, or your finances are tight. Recognize that God is using that situation to mature you and draw you closer to him. Trust him and let him do it. It's not easy, and it doesn't always feel good, and it can take a long time. But you get to wrestle with God. Thanks. Thanks, Maria. So if you've been coming here, you know that the last two weeks in a row, that same verse has been quoted. James 1, 2 to 8. Right? Adam Jensky quoted it last week, talking about when he had Giardia for several months when he was serving in Nicaragua, and how his friends would email him saying, consider it pure joy, brother, when you're suffering, um, because it produces perseverance through your trials. And he was like, that was very helpful, sort of. And then I remember when Maria taught, she gave um, a very similar testimony at Prayer, Praise, and Pie. And, um, and as we come to the end of this year, one of the things I believe is, you know, we preach too much in churches and we don't review enough. We don't apply enough. And so I wanted to go back and go back over 1 Corinthians. What are the big lessons from 1 Corinthians? What's, what does it really want to press in on us? And it's the same thing as this passage says. It's been coming up with other people. And essentially, it's this message. This is one of the big messages in 1 Corinthians. Grow up. Love Paul. And, and Paul being inspired by the Spirit, that, that's what, that, that was, that's what God was saying to these people, grow up. And it's not just, and one of the things that's, that's, in, that's helpful about the passage in James is that 
it covers two of the big components of maturity. You'll notice the word maturity isn't in that passage, but it covers wisdom and perseverance. I mean, what is perseverance? Perseverance is the discipline to act according to wisdom over a long period of time, however long you have to. That's what perseverance is. And maturity, in a lot of ways, is made up of the union of wisdom and discipline that creates wise perseverance. Right? But when you, when you notice it, and, and think about this, it's the second sentence in James. Right? I mean, this is important. He wanted to get at this. He said, hi, and then he said, consider it pure joy when you go through trials because it produces perseverance, and if you need wisdom, you should ask God. Because at the very beginning of this epistle, this letter he wrote to these other believers, he's like, you guys, you need, you need God, and you need to have faith in God to become mature. But one of the things you notice when you start reading the Bible is this is, there's nothing obscure about this. It's one of the themes of the whole Bible. It comes up again and again in the New Testament. And it's one of the biggest themes of 1 Corinthians. Grow up. Now, most people in America have been at the receiving end or the delivering end of that sentence before. I'm a little brother, so I may be more than most. And my brother doesn't live near me anymore, but I do have a wife now to pick up where he left off. But um, nobody really likes to be told to grow up. And the thing is, is that when the Apostle Paul makes this argument, he's actually a little meaner. Like, if, look at 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4. He says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual. And by spiritual, he means they're spiritually mature. Right? I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? When one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Now, I think about what he's saying. What is presumed in the sentence, are you not mere men? Because it's connected to infancy, right? Essentially what he's implicitly arguing is human beings, when they are not spiritually mature, act like children. When a, when a man or a woman is a mere man or woman, they tend to act like children. They act like infants. They, they get in fights. They're quarreling and fighting with each other as though they were kids and parents are saying, shut up, keep your hands to yourself. Don't make me stop this car, Right? And as you move on through the Bible, there's a number of passages like this. For example, in the letter to the Hebrews, which is a letter written to Jewish Christians, the author says, you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. And you know, one of the things that ends up can happen to us very easily is we can go to church or we can listen to sermons online or we can go to small, we do all this stuff and we can think that because we're imbibing these things that we're growing, but what you're, the fact that you're taking something in doesn't dictate your maturity level. We can still be babies, just drinking in milk and staying like that. I mean, I don't, I don't know about where you are life stage-wise, but I have, my wife and I had an unexpected child recently, and uh, unex- not unexpected because we know what pregnancy is, but just unexpected in terms of conception. And she's, she's six weeks old now, and just praise the Lord that she actually looks conscious now. Because, wow, our baby's boring. Whew. 
good heavens. You just want to shoot yourself. And, and she finally, like, she can make a little smile now, kind of. She doesn't even know how to smile, but she kind of opens her mouth like this. And which, you know, that's what adults do with her, so why wouldn't she, right? But, like, there's a little bit of engagement, and it's so nice because babies are boring. And every age my kids get to, it's always better than the last one. People ask me sometimes, like, what do you think your favorite kid age is going to be? And I go, yeah, about 26, you know? Because every age they get better. I'm looking forward to having mature kids. I like them this, I like them this age. I've always liked them. You know, they're, they're, they're great, but... Man, they just get better, you know? And I'm hoping they won't be idiots when they're teenagers. And, you know, it'll just keep getting better. Because I like maturity. Maturity is good, right? And um, it's very easy as Christians to just be infants. I mean, think about these passages. These are people who've been Christians for a while. And, you know, Paul and these other biblical writers are saying, look, maturity is really important. Faith in Jesus produces real maturity. And then he writes this to everybody because, because for some reason, even when we become Christians, we still are very adept at avoiding maturity. Very good at it. We're, we don't want it. It's not something that naturally comes to us. We go, oh, I think I'll become a little bit more mature. And so I want to talk about two things this morning, but I'm not going to get to both of them because I've already preached this sermon, and no, I won't. Um, so I want to talk to you about the, about the importance of maturity this morning. And, and um, next Sunday, I'm going to talk to you about um, how maturity comes. Because Christianity has a fundamentally different answer about how maturity happens than any other way of seeking maturity. And that is that if you believe in Jesus, you, you believe, and I'll, I'll argue this next week from Scripture, that maturity comes first by faith. And that really is different than the disciplinary workspace approaches. But, and, but we'll get to that next week because I'm not going to get through the rest this week. So I want to talk a little bit about this. That if we believe in Jesus sort of the way we were meant to believe in Jesus by Jesus, that kind of faith will always produce growing maturity. And I don't mean spiritual maturity. I don't think you can split it up. I mean, think about the language that we use about spiritual growth. Like, we talk about spiritual growth, right? I mean, if you've been in Explore class, we're spiritual growth, and church should be spiritual growth. But what does that even mean? How, do you, how would you even know if you were growing spiritually? Right? Well, I read my Bible. Okay, that means you're drinking, but are you just drinking milk and staying an infant? I mean, that doesn't really tell you anything. Well, I come to church. Okay, well, you know, babies and grown-ups still sleep in beds. I mean, it doesn't really differentiate you at all. I mean, how, did you act, how would you actually know if you were growing spiritually? It's very difficult to get out this, this spirit, spiritual spirit, you know, magnifying glass and pull it out of yourself and look at it. You can't, you don't really have direct access to it. So how would you know if you were growing into spiritual maturity? Well, here's why. You would be growing into all the other kinds of maturity. That's how you'd know. You'd be, you'd be becoming a mature being, You'd be becoming emotionally mature and interpersonally mature and morally mature and financially mature and you'd be becoming mature. You wouldn't be acting like mere men. You wouldn't be quarreling like babies. You wouldn't be, right? You could metabolize more. More trials could come and it would do less to you. It would just develop more perseverance. You'd respond in faith more often than you would respond with anger and cynicism. You would just, you would be more mature in everything because real faith in Jesus produces spiritual maturity, but it produces every kind of maturity. And what I want to talk about this morning is it's really necessary that we, we focus on growing in spiritual maturity, not just in spiritual growth, because that's too vague to hold our feet to the fire, right? So when people are new, like if you're a visitor, the language I'm going to— here's what the language we're going to use with you. If, you. if you don't like come to church very much and you're like, I don't know about this religion thing and the Jesus, whatever, here's what we're going to say to you. 
Let's go on a spiritual journey. We're all on a spiritual journey together. And you know, that might sound intriguing to you, and that's, that's, why, that's how that language is designed, right? Let's go on a spiritual journey, right? And that's great, because we are on a spiritual journey, aren't we? We're all on a spiritual journey together. And then we'll talk about spiritual growth. Let's do some—we should do some spiritual growth. Let's spirit, what does that even mean? We don't know, but it's something general we can aim towards. But it's not until you go, okay, look, this is what maturity is. We all know what it means. We all know what it is. So this is maturity. This is what it means to be a grown-up. This is what a mature person does. And real faith in Jesus is going to make us more like that. Are we getting more like that? You see, the problem with that is that it's falsifiable and verifiable. It's terrifying. But it's honest. And it's what real faith will do in us and to us. One of the things that... Um, I think is really important to recognize is what, what tends to cause people to become mature? Because one of the things I think it's important to recognize is do we live in and exist in an environment that is going to produce maturity? Right? Personally or culturally? Because you see, there were certain times in human life where if you didn't grow up, you just, you ended up dying. You mean you're dead, right? Or if you didn't grow up, if you didn't grow up financially, you're going to go to debtor's prison, or be an indentured servant or a slave. If you didn't grow up, really bad things would happen to you. There, there was a time when growing up was sort of just what everybody did. For example, I don't know if you know this, but the whole, the word teenager was invented in the 1940s, right? For, for thousands of years of human history, there was, you were a child, and then when you could plow your own field and blacksmith your own whatever, you became a grown-up. And when you were a grown-up, you, your parents arranged your marriage, and off you went. And that's just how life was. And, th- and now we have, we have childhood, and then we have early adolescence, and then we have adolescence, and then we have college, and then we have emerging adulthood, and then we have quarter-life crisis, and, then, and you know— and then there's probably another couple of words I don't even know. It's just—and, you know, we've got sort of a long maturation process. And what it does is it, it creates an environment in which what you might call the apparatus of maturity. What, do, what sorts of things do mature people do, and we don't do them? And, and here's the thing. When you, when you recognize whether or not you live in a system or an environment that leads to maturity, you don't have to take it personally, Right? So if, if you're like, okay, um, you know, I'm, I'm 32 and I haven't done what most people have accomplished by, you know, the, I haven't entered into the apparatus of maturity that people used to by 21, that's not necessarily your fault. And it's not necessarily bad, right? For example, the educational process for people has been drawn out five, six, seven years now. And so the kinds of status that you could have achieved much younger economically has been drawn out a lot longer. But economically, parents still tend, tend to hold the same economic ideals that their parents did, Right? So, um, when do I stop paying for my kids' education and life? I stop paying for it when they're—right? They need to be financially independent. Then I stop paying for it, and they can't get married until they're financially independent, right? That's crazy talk. So—but education now goes into their middle 20s, and then we tell the 26-year-old who's still in their master's degree, who's been dating so-and-so for X number of years, that he should be chaste and not get married and— you see how it creates this environment of maturational confusion, right? One of the things Lexi and I are doing is we're saving up money 
so that if our, if our daughters or son want to get married before they're fully financially independent because of extended education, we can bless that. Because who, they'll have to get like six PhDs before they can get a job by the time they get old enough, right? It's crazy. So, I mean, you got to get your PhD in literature before you can, you know, work at Starbucks. So, <laughs> I, this really happened. I bought a TV this weekend, and the guy asked me if Trinity on my shirt referred to Trinity College Dublin. I was like, no, but did you study there? He's like, yeah, I did a master's in literature there. I was like, really? He was behind the electronics counter at Best Buy. I was like, well, I bet you have some really good favorite novels. He's like, yeah, I do. Anyway, that's kind of a sidebar. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that. That's a story. Um, it's, it's important to recognize that because we are the kind of creatures that don't intentionally chase after maturity, we create a culture in which whenever we can, we cannot be mature. Um, in which we can um, increasingly avoid a commitment, um, that we can avoid responsibility, and that we don't really need wisdom. Um, there's, here's a quote, for example, of the, the problem of maturity going out of a society. Um, quote, our earth is degenerate in these later days. Children no longer obey their parents. That quote was actually written on an Assyrian tablet from 2800 BC. And I've heard this, a similar quote is in Aristotle. The idea that we're becoming less responsible, that's not a new concept. The idea that kids don't listen like they used to, not a new concept. Because we go in cycles on this, right? We go, oh, we need to be freer with kids. And they get kind of free enough to, we want to kill them. And we get all, you know, there's, there's cycles for that kind of thing. Um, but here's a quote from John Ortberg that I think is helpful. He said this, Ponce de Leon didn't risk his life and his fortune searching for the fountain of maturity. Right? Uh, for those of you who went to public school, Ponce de Leon was, a, was an explorer that believed there was a fountain of youth in Florida, and he went searching for it some time ago. Um, but here's the rest of the quote. He did, not sp- he did not spend his life searching for a fountain of maturity, but... What once was a quest has become an industry. Between Rogaine, Viagra, Botox, and Ginkgo, the fountain of youth has turned out to be pharmacological. There, there's this, this idea that as technolo- technology and industrialization has progressed, two things have happened to create an environment in which maturity is not our focus, right? And I get, it's fun because I get to pick on both political parties here, which is my favorite thing to do. Um, it, in one sense, the development of the industrialized free market has done this by creating lots of products, um, giving them to us whenever we want, and then creating a credit system in which we can buy things that we don't, don't yet have money for, right? So we have credit cards. The credit card system was designed for you to spend more money. It was not designed to take your money through financing. It does that because we're stupid, but that's not, wasn't the point of credit cards to charge you 12% interest. The point of credit cards was they knew if they gave you a card, you would spend more, even more money than you had. Um, Dave Ramsey says in the Dave Ramsey course that the average person who goes from handing somebody bills of cash to swiping a credit card spends on average 33% more in whatever store they're in. And that's actually happened to me before. I have had things on the counter to purchase at a store. It was Sports Authority. And I, I ran my debit card and it didn't work for some reason. And so I had to pay with cash. And so I opened my wallet and I took out my $20 bill to hand to this guy. And I looked back on the table and said, I'm not going to get this today. And I was like, Dave Ramsey. 
I was perfectly willing to buy it swiping my credit card. But the minute I had to hand over cash, I didn't. That's why they were invented. That's why you can buy stuff on Amazon with one click. But why? Because you, you'll just click it. It's, a, it's, it's fast. And it removes you, it removes the decision from the consequences. Whenever decisions and consequences get separated, we become less mature. It's a moral hazard. It's an inevitable consequence. And the free market system, when you add in the internet, and you add in technolo- technology, and you add in credit cards, and all these systems together, it creates an environment in which we become more impulsive, less self-controlled, less persevering, more immediate gratification. It creates infants out of us. Now, it's not just free market, is it? It's also centralized governmental protection systems do the same thing. They both have moral hazards, right? I love, so I love Social Security. I think it's a great thing. My mom gets a check if she was that old. Um, and I think, it's a, I think it's a, it's, in some ways it's a great program to take care of elderly people and make sure that people, there aren't old women dying in the streets, as people like to say. Um, however, um, it also takes away the personal responsibility of you saving everything you need to save for your later years. People, people live nicer than they should. They should have put a cap on their expenses earlier than they ought to have, and they should have taken responsibility for this. One of the reasons I know this is I'm in a generation that will likely see no Social Security. I just don't, I don't believe it's going to exist. If it does, it'll be great. I'll be more wealthy and I can give more to the kingdom of God. But I'm not planning on it, and it's, it's transformed my life. You see, because I have to have a budget that I focus on very specifically. I can't plan on getting this help. That means I have to stop my spending, save a certain amount, look after my own investments, make sure that my, my wife and I keep each other accountable because we can't be spending off the map because there is an extra money because we have to save as much as we can because we don't know what investment growth is going to be. It looks like it's not going to be too good for a while. And I don't expect to get Social Security. It changes our life and it's forced us to be much more economically focused and make decisions based on discipline and wisdom, and it's increased our financial maturity dramatically. Because I can't count on that system. I'm too young. Right? And so a lot of the systems that we, we have created in what we consider a civilized society, which, listen, I'm not a politician, and I'm not an expert in this. I don't know which of them are good ideas or bad ideas or how they should be done. I'm not making any kind of political statement. But when you put together centralized government care Institutions with free markets connected to credit cards, one-click purchasing, and all that kind of stuff, and you put those together, that is not an, that is not an environment that promotes personal maturity. Do you think that people make better personal health choices because of health insurance or worse? Of course, they make worse health decisions. Right? That's why, it's one of the reasons why everything keeps going up. Because we want individual benefits and we know that the expenses are dispersed. It's the most, ba- you take an economics 101. It's basic economic moral hazard. Focused benefits, dispersed payment. And everybody does it and the cost of everything goes up. Right? And if we don't recognize that we are the kind of creature that doesn't want to grow more mature and that we presently live in an environment that doesn't help us grow more mature, we need to quit kidding ourselves that this is going to naturally happen. It is not. You are swimming against the current. And this is one of, there's, there's a couple things to take from this. This is one of the reasons why 
people think the church is less important as an organized institution than it's ever been. It's actually more important than it's ever been. You might not like the general idea of organized religion, but if we live constantly in an environment that leads us away from spiritual maturity, doesn't it make sense we would intentionally subject ourselves and put ourselves into an environment that is specifically designed to lead us towards spiritual maturity? large group gathering where we, we take time to worship God directly, listen to his word preached specifically, get in small groups so we have mutual accountability and we're around people who are trying to live that kind of life together and trying to figure it out and what to do. And that's another reason why I don't believe churches should be 100% full service. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Where you can almost drive through and get the sermon downloaded. Do we want to be a friendly church? Absolutely. Do we want to make sure that when parents drop off their kids, it's easy, and their kids are at something great? Absolutely. There's a lot of things I think we should do, do and produce these environments together that people can enjoy, but should we do everything for people so they can just come and consume their religious goods and services? No, because what it'll do, yeah, will it attract more people? Yeah. Will they all remain spiritual infants? Absolutely. We will all remain spiritual infants. And it'll create a terrible moral hazard because we'll go, well, we should just hire more staff, Nick. Okay, fine. But then what happens? We only give half of what it costs to hire the staff to produce the things that we really should be producing ourselves. And so the church declines. Because we say, oh, shouldn't staff do that at a full-service church? But I won't give what it actually takes to accomplish that. And, and see, that's one of the reasons why I've said, and, and if you've been to any of the congregational meetings, I've said, listen, we need to be a church where the ministries and the work of the church re- remains in the hands of the people of the church. That if, if we want to do something as a church, we had better do it as the people of this church and not think somebody else will do it, and then we can come here on Sunday morning and celebrate it together like we had a part of it and sort of take personal vampiric spiritual pride in the work of others. Right? And why do we do that? Because do I want to, I don't want to compete with the other slicker churches? No. And I, they, and all the other churches that are slicker than us, that's great because they will, they will accomplish something. But I don't want to be that because I want, I don't, I want us to grow up together. I want us to become spiritually strong. I want us to become like the God Maria read about in the Psalms, that there's two things I've heard about you, that you are strong and that you are loving Right? David Wells is a sociological the- theologian at Gordon Conwell Seminary. And one of the things he writes in his, in his books um, is he says, listen, what you need to recognize, and one of the things that sociologists have been studying for a really long time is the thing that forms you is not the teaching you receive. The, the word exchange, that's not what forms you. What forms you is the environment that you're in, it's much more powerful. The systems and the environment that you're in shape you much more. So Tim Keller said it this way, you will become like the people you eat with. And I'm not saying that preaching isn't effective or whatever, but, but if you're in an environment all week, and then you come and you listen to a sermon, what's the net effect on maturity going to be for you? It's going to be depressing, right? It's going to be depressing. Um, And, and, w- and when you start thinking this through, it begins to affect a lot of different things in our lives as Christians. We start looking at a lot of stuff differently. For example, um, if you are my age or older, you may have grown up going to a playground that had these, these things called a merry-go-round. Um, the strange look on that girl's face is called a smile. And um, that is a particular kind of smile. That is the, if I let go, I'm going to die smile. 
It is, the, it is the rush smile. And you cannot get that feeling unless you take your, your life in your hands. Unless you want to spend like $140 to go to an amusement park and wait in line for three hours and have actually two minutes of fun over the course of 12 hours. I'm not cynical. Um, so in, back in the day... You, you would play on these things And they were great Because they would spin super fast And all around them was, was gravel Right? Do you remember this? Are you old enough for this? Okay um, And so you'd spin it and the, and the funnest part Wasn't holding on and getting sick And throwing up on the kid next to you Or behind you um, it, was when, it was when either you flew off Or you made somebody else fly off And they went careening through the air like this And they landed and rolled, you know and every once in a while, you know, somebody would break an arm or chip a tooth or hit their head on something and, and they'd cry and whatever. But it was fun. And here's, here's the thing that people, I think, don't fully understand anymore in a lot of ways is it was training. Like monkey bars and merry-go-rounds and these sorts of things were training. They made you the kind of person who knew how to fall down. They made you the kind of person who knew how to grab on things and move your weight around. It, it made you the sort of person who wasn't particularly clumsy, right? Now they have these things where, but below the monkey, like the monkey bar things, they have air blowing up. So when you fall, you never actually hit the ground, you know? It's just, there's no, like, there's no real, and, and it's, here's the result. The result is, I have a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old daughter who have never been seriously injured. That's good, right? Never been seriously injured. But I'm afraid to let them go out to the circle in our cul-de-sac because of how unaware and clumsy and prone to accident and unrespecting of danger they are. Even though I, I lecture at them, I talk at them about danger all the time, they've never really experienced it. And so they are so vulnerable because they've been wrapped in bubble wrap in their maturation process. My, I mean, my daughter sprained her ankle going up the stairs one time. Like, I have jumped from one rock to another with a 30-foot drop under me. It's like more than six feet across when I was a wilderness leader. Didn't think a thing of it because I, I'm agile. I played three sports. I played out in a playground. I played outside when I was a kid. And, and you're like, well, you know, our kids are going to live in a safe environment. Yeah, but you, they, see, you've got to wrap the whole world in bubble wrap for these adults. They're going to hurt themselves. And here's the problem. You can't wrap other people in bubble wrap. They're going to hurt each other. You can try to do whatever you want about the environment people live in. This is one of the reasons why we have the safest society we've ever had, and we hurt each other emotionally and personally more viciously than any time I can remember. Because you can't wrap the people in bubble wrap. And if you have an immature person, you can try to create an environment in which that immature person can succeed. But there's always going to be catches on the thing. And also, what, what's going to happen when risk needs to be taken to have some kind of kingdom impact? Right? Well, my daughter doesn't need any situational awareness. Well, when I take my daughter to the red light district in Mumbai, India, where people, children are stolen into the flesh trade all the time, I'm going to want her to have some situational awareness. And I'm going to do that in two years. When she's 12. And I'm going to want her to be kind of like, what's going on? Who's that guy? Where's my dad's hand? And what? Do you, I mean, do you want your kid to take off like their sophomore year and go to Africa all summer and like try to figure out something? 
like how to help some people and who knows where they're going to be or what kind of cars they're going to ride in. They're probably we went to we went to Guatemala. You remember going to, Gua- went to Guatemala? We're in trucks hanging on to bars, going like this. There's a thousand foot drop on the side. You know, it was it was good that Nathan's kids were athletes. That was a good thing. We we need to, we want to be loving people. We do want to be kind. People. No, we want to have big fights in the playground where we knock out people's teeth. No. Right? But do we want kids to wrestle and get hurt doing it? Absolutely. Right? Do we want do we want people to grow up strong enough and able to risk enough so that they can be real live human beings? Absolutely. And one of the biggest problem people have is with boredom. It's cuz they're boring. Right? Chris said the other day in the office, you know, bored people are boring. I mean, people who aren't bored, I'm never bored. I can't remember the last time I was bored. It's, the whole concept, this concept is foreign to me, right? There's so much to do, there's so much of import in the world, and so much to, to impact, so much to do, so much to think, so much to read, so much to know, so much to put together, so much to talk about, so many people to help. How could, how is it even possible? I, con- but see, see, when everything's just kind of, oh, here, let me give you some religious goods and services. Here, let me give you some economic goods and services. Here, let me give you some educational goods and services. Here, let me, we just, be, we just become these like fat eaters of, of consuming everything. We don't have a self. We become boring. We become weak. We're we're bored and we're boring. We're infants when it comes to maturity, and our environment is set up to produce that. And so we need a counter environment in the home. We need a counter environment in the church. We need a counter logic in our preaching and in what we read and what we talk about with each other because we have to create a counter environment and a counter system to form maturity in ourselves. In some of the most simplest things. Like, have you fallen into doing homework for your kids? Something like 43% of American parents are doing their kids' homework. In the South, it's like 76, which was my experience when I pastored there. And I have looked parents in the face and said, you are ruining your child. Stop doing that. You are ruining your child. Stop doing that. And they made the next project for their kid and the next project for their kid because they couldn't bear that their kid wouldn't have one of the best projects in school. You're making them weak, stupid, boring, bored, helpless. You're creating every possible moral hazard. So we need to adjust our parenting. Go to the parenting class. We need to adjust how we create a counterculture, come to church, help us form this place to be spiritually healthy. We've got to do that because maturity is so important. It doesn't happen naturally. We're in an environment that doesn't self-create it, right? We've got to grow up. And it's hard, and we've got to keep after it. We can't just be on a spiritual journey that's kind of vague. We've got to be on a very specific one. We have to know what maturity is, and we have to seek it. Now, there's, there's kind of two ways that you can respond to that sort of idea. The whole like, hey, hey, grow up. Love Paul. Right? Let me go up a little bit. Oh, okay, this is crazy. Mary around. Hey, let's get one of those. Governor to control speed for safety. It goes about this fast. Hold on, Jimmy. I will, I will. Okay, sorry. Um, okay, so my, one of my favorite YouTube videos, and you will respect me less if it's possible for having told you this, but is, uh, is a Saturday Night Live um, skit called Stop It that has Bob Newhart as the main 
character. I love Bob Newhart. He's hilarious. And so, uh, so okay, so here's the story. So this woman comes in, and he's a counselor, okay? So she comes into the counseling office. Her name's Catherine, and she's like, you know, Dr. Anderson, um, hi, it's Catherine. He's like, oh, yeah, afraid to be buried alive in a box. Yes. Okay, well, she's like, shall I lay down? Oh, no, we don't do that anymore. We'll just go ahead and sit here. He says, I need to tell you a little bit about billing. Um, we bill $5 for the first five minutes, and then nothing after that. And she's like, well, that sounds great. A little good to be true, actually. He's like, well, I can almost guarantee you that the session won't go longer than five minutes. Um, and so he said, so go. What, what, what would you like to talk about? She, she, well, she's like, I, um, I'm afraid of being buried alive in a box. Um, I, I, it, it's terrifying. It's, it's debilitating. I can't get in cars. I can't go in houses. I can't go into most buildings. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's terrifying. And he's like, well— has anybody ever tried to bury you in a box? She said, well, well, no, but, but truly, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, it takes over my whole life, and it, it wrecks my ability to do most things. And he said, he said okay, so what, what you're saying is you're claustrophobic. Yes, okay, all right. Um, okay, so Catherine, I'm going to say two words to you. I want you to listen very, very carefully um, and Take them into your heart and life. Take them with you out of the office and incorporate them into your life. And she says, well, should I, should I write this? So she takes out the pad and paper. Should I write them down? He says, well, it's only two words. We find most people can remember them. And so she goes, okay, I'm ready. He said, okay, you ready? I'm going to say the words to you now. Okay. Stop it! Just stop it! Stop it! What? What? Stop it! S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. Stop it. And she says, but doctor, what are you saying? And he's like, you know, I say those two words to people, and you would not believe how many people ask exactly the same question you've just said. It's not Yiddish, Catherine. It's English. Stop it. So you want me to just stop it? Yes, stop it, right? And it kind of goes on, and it's funny. Which I checked with the Easton's last hour, and they said that is actually not a good counseling method. Okay, so in case you're wondering, um, it's not a good counseling method. But, um, but that's, you know, when somebody says, hey, you know, we got to grow up, it's really easy to hear it that way and to be like, you know, I, I try to grow up. You know, I've tried this. I, I can't do it. And you just tell me to grow up, right? It's kind of like, you know, w- which New Year's resolution are you going to make again, right? I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to be nicer to my spouse. I'm not going to throw my kids off of things, you know? You just kind of, you make these things, but then you don't do them, right? I mean, that's the whole fun of New Year's resolutions. You know, if, when you're about, I mean, I'm 35. I should be out of New Year's resolutions, right? You know, can you, I mean, if you're like 60, you'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. I mean, you just got to have some repeats, right? Well, why are they repeats? Because you don't, why? Well, what if, what if, the, what, what if this is the problem? What if the problem is you aren't the kind of person who can do that? Right? What if, you, what if your New Year's resolution is to lose weight, and, but you're not the kind of person who can lose weight? What if it's to, to, to be more loving to everybody in your life, but you're not the kind of person who can do that? You see, there's the other way to take the whole grow-up thing is this. So my daughter, my 10-year-old daughter, um, has never shown any athletic interest in anything until two weeks ago. She decided that she was going to be a basketball player. She's the one who's taken art classes, okay? And so she goes to a couple of practices. I showed her a few things, and she's like, Daddy, I want to talk to the coach. I want to play in the games. She's a fourth grader. She's playing on the fifth grader team, and that team is playing against teams that have been playing together for three years, Okay? 
Yeah, it's that much fun. So we went to the, her game. So we called the coach. The coach's like, yeah, we'll put her in the game. So we go to the, we go, I go to her game. I drop her off. She goes, her team loses 30 to 4, okay? They got five shots the whole game. Every, just about every, um, which, you know, two for five, that's not a bad shooting percentage. But, you know, but they just, they were just, I mean, just turned the ball over every play. It was, it was, it, it was the exact same, did the exact same things again, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. So we get, we go, we're walking out to the car, and Abby says to me, she's like, Dad, just don't yell at me. I don't, I just, uh, and I, and I, which I was kind of like, is, is that what I do? Do I just yell at you? So I didn't think of myself like that. She's like, no, but well, but you taught me all this stuff this last week, and I didn't really do any of it well, and I just know that you probably think I didn't play very well. Uh, and so we get in the car, and we're driving away. And I'm trying to think, you know, what would an emotionally healthy person do in this situation? And so I thought, I should say something encouraging to my daughter. So I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm like, Abby, I'm going to say something to you, and, and I think it's encouraging if you, if you think about it the right way. And she's like, okay. I was like, so— since that was your first basketball game, you are never going to play that bad ever again the rest of your life. <laughs> right? It's your first game. You don't have any skills. I mean, you didn't, you didn't have to learn anything yet. You don't know how to play it. You know I mean? Just, that's the worst you will ever play basketball. Every game the rest of your life, you're going to be better than that. And, and she kind of was like, okay. I was like, does that encourage you? <laughs> And she's like, you know, sort of. <laughs> and you see, that's, that can be the good news of grow up. That can be the good news of the call of maturity, is that whatever, whatever it is that's, that's in your life that is the bill you're paying for your stupidity, or, I mean, whatever it is, whatever has happened up until this point could be the worst you ever play. Because if you focus on the way God wants to mature you, which I'm going to talk about for the next three weeks, so come to church, what you could find is all the things you really wanted to be, you will be when you become the right kind of person, when you just simply seek the maturity God wants to put into you. And as that wisdom develops and as that discipline develops into a kind of wise perseverance, the stuff that you simply can't deliver on right now, you will gain the capacity to deliver on because the good news of the gospel isn't just that your sins are forgiven, which is really good news. But in addition to the good news that your sins are forgiven, the promise is that God comes to live in and with you to transform you into the very thing he's declared you to be, which is like Jesus, who was the most fully mature human being that ever lived. So that we exist in a situation in which, if we will come to maturity by faith, we exist in a situation in which our Lord and Savior is the most mature person who's ever lived and leads perfectly in example and purchases for us the power of God to do it, but also we are ruled over by the God who is the God of all wisdom and perseverance. The one who is both strong and loving, who wants to build into us a God-centered strength and love. And when that happens, all these other places where we would like to make resolutions and make improvements, we will be able to deliver on those for the right reasons and be able to deliver on them at all. 
Because when we don't chase maturity, we will, not, we will be the kind of people who fail in three ways. We won't bring any glory to God, and there'll be virtually nothing to say about our redemptive potential. We will be a great trial to ourselves and a great trial to everyone around us. But when we will seek the maturity that Jesus can bring, all of those three things can be turned around. Rather than paying the cost of our silliness, we'll be ready to pay a real cost of the pain of living for the redemption of others. Rather than being a danger to ourselves, we'll be able to have a surplus in ourselves, an emotional surplus, a financial— there will be surpluses in us that can go out for others, but also we will personally exist in a kind of emotional surplus, which is a great thing. And then as those things go out, we will actually not be a trial to others. We'll be a great redemptive help to others. And when that happens, there's a feedback loop on that perseverance, that wisdom, and that maturity. And so I'd really encourage you to take grow up in that second way. To hear that like it's a message from Jesus. To let go of vague references to spiritual journeys and spiritual growth to the extent to which it doesn't hold your feet to the fire. To think about the fact that we live in an environment that's not going to create this for us. To commit ourselves to the kind of environments and structures that will help us, like small groups and church and classes like Financial Peace University or parenting, so that we can try to accomplish these things together. And then first and foremost, to turn to God for the wisdom we need, for the strength we need, for the forgiveness we need, for all the things we need to begin in the real direction of maturity, so that we do the things not just for the selfish purposes that we might concoct for ourselves, but for the right reason of that everything that we do would be for the glory of God. Because when we live for the glory of God, we live for the good of all people, including ourselves. And when we forget about ourselves in that equation, it becomes the best of all. Let's pray. Father, um, besides praying that the Packers are already up 7 nothing. Um, we pray that you would help us to grow in maturity. We pray that you would help us to turn from our presumption that we will naturally be mature enough and our, our real seeking after youth and um, ungrounded freedoms and the sorts of things that will keep us infants. Help us to be the sort of people that that eat spiritual steak rather than sip spiritual milk. Help us to be people that bring an enormous amount of glory to you, that come to you for what we need to grow, and who experience real maturity, and that that maturity would be a blessing to everybody in our lives, Christian or non-Christian. That would be a blessing to the city. That would be, it would bring glory to you so that other people would see you for what you really are and that we would find great joy and fulfillment in that. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and draw us to that capability and that desire and, and the community of people who will try to accomplish this together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.